Welcome to the IPv6 Buzz podcast, where we dare to dive into the 128-bit address space wormhole. Quick reminder, there are sponsorship opportunities available for IPv6 Buzz and all the other Packet Pusher podcast shows. So if you're interested, go to packetpushers.net slash sponsorships and you can get all the details. And if you've got something cool working with v6, we definitely want to hear from you. So reach out and uh, let's get you on the show. I'm Ed Horley with my co-host, Tom Coffey and Scott Hogue. And today we're going to be talking about sort of pitfalls and, and what to avoid with v6. And uh, I think this is a great topic because... Often these are the first set of questions that we get from customers around, hey, what are the things that we should be avoiding? How should we be thinking about IPv6? And uh, and so there's a whole set of sort of discussion points that we think make a lot of sense for the audience, for you folks to sort of know when we're talking about v6. And uh, we would love to hear back from you folks too, if you have ones that you think uh, we should be adding to our list. But let's let's go ahead and jump into it. And I think the obvious one right off the bat is, going into the mindset of IPv4 thinking, right? In terms of carrying over everything that you're doing with V4 and thinking all of that is applicable in V6. I think that's the biggest pitfall to sort of avoid because you just don't know about enough about IPv6 yet from a, maybe how the protocol works and how to think about design. And so you just carry forward everything that you were doing with V4, assuming that that's how V6 is going to work too. I think that's a fair statement. Yeah, absolutely. And we covered this in detail back in uh, episode 102. I think uh, it was dedicated entirely to IPv4 thinking, but it, uh, you know, whenever we engage with folks that are new to IPv6, it, it almost always manifests in, in various forms. And I think the one that, uh, you know, the one that's the most impactful right up front is, is IPv4 thinking uh, applied to IPv6 related to, to address space, right? And just like the whole tendency to think, well, you know, I'm, I'm, used to making sure that that I don't waste host addresses in v4 by doing a lot of uh, you know VLSM variable length subnet masking subnetting of of IPv4 prefix space you know just to, to squeeze the most out of what little I have or you know the, the fact that it's not an abundant resource uh, and hasn't been for a long time and uh, and it's just super natural for you know engineers and architects to just carry that mode of thinking into IPv6 and think you know and and then right away the challenge of like oh I've got an entire interface identifier of 64 bits there's no way that that could possibly be something that I shouldn't be subnetting <laughs> like right out of the gate it's like well should I start using slash 80s or slash 96s and <laughs> you know and I think the first you know, any amount of time you spend up front with IPv6, you know, when it's new to you, that that that's that mode of thinking is just it's really easy to fall into because that's just what you're used to with before. Right. Yeah. It's you don't know any different because no one has sat down and explained the whole concept of, you know, the slash 64. This is right. This is the sizing. Don't don't bother changing that. Right. And so you think you're you got the whole flexibility of the whole 128 bits, I guess. Right. In terms of design and, <laughs> and how you think about it. I like using slash 112s because it gives me 16 bits in the interface identifier. So everything is like a class B address. Much. <laughs> well, no. Someone locked Scott up. That's, wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's so that's so retro, Scott. That's lo-fi IPv6. Class B, <laughs> V6. Yeah, I like the 96 because we can stuff all the IPv4 in there and not have to worry about it. And, and so it all matches up. And so we can just repeat that for different prefixes over and over. So yeah. just sit, we'll sit all the things. <laughs> sit, yeah, exactly. That's right. <laughs> Uh, well, I, it's it's funny because you are going to see, and I guess I guess this is a caveat that that we should state is that there are RFCs and transition technologies that do make use of 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 prefix lengths that aren't sixty fours, 
Um, but but they're designed very specifically around solving specific problems in this space. And so don't be confused about what you're seeing from a maybe an RFC that is used for transition purposes versus the use cases of how you should design your network for day-to-day -day use for V6 as V6, you know, for V6 moving forward. I think that's a really important point because otherwise you can get confused and you'd be like, oh yeah, you know, the 96 is completely legitimate. I should be doing this for, you know you know, NAT64 configurations and for other other areas. And that's not what the purpose was for those particular design elements. They were done for a very specific design and architecture to solve a transition problem and to and to give flexibility there, but not necessarily for how you would assign out VLANs in your network. Right. right? Using slash 126s is totally IPv4 thinking, right? Because, <laughs> you know, you think, oh, I use a slash 30. For a point-to-point -point link, I'll use a slash 126, you know. And so, yeah, that works for the first couple of, you know, and then you map the interface identifier to the last, you know, octet of your V4 address. So you have like colon, 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 one, colon, colon, two, colon, colon, three for the first slash 126, the second slash one, and then it matches, you know, dot zero, dot one, dot two, dot three you know, on IPv4. And then your, your second slash 126 is uh, four, five, six, seven. And then your neck, your third slash 126 is where things get bad, right. right? It's, it's eight colon colon eight colon colon nine colon colon A colon colon B. And then you're like, <laughs> oh no, I don't have A's and B's in my IPv4 <laughs> octet. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's yep. right. Well, and the other well, pernicious, the other pernicious thing about it too is that if you start subnetting that slash 64, you know, a lot you can get away with it for a while, right? Stuff kind of works. And you know, we don't none of us, I think, deploy networks in this completely deterministic way where we we know everything that we're going to do before we do it and we validated that all configs work. I mean, there's just really no realistic way to do that. And so we sort of proceed here heuristically. You know, and 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 that's the the thing about it, where it, okay, it works for a while, and and then it stops working. Like you subnet something, and you you know you break some function of IPv6 that's expecting that 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 entire 64 bits is set aside for interface identifier. You know, Slack is a good example of that. Um, and so it, it it you how far down the rabbit hole you go with you know using subnets of the slash 64 before it finally like you know bites back and then you have like a configuration that you can't make work and, and v6 isn't functioning and then you know it's like well something wrong with v6 here well no it's actually a misconfiguration technically and uh, and you didn't discover it until just right now yeah yeah it's it's <laughs> i guess i guess the the thinking part is how critical um how critical it is to understand what you're actually gaining with v6 from a network space versus a host space i guess that's the balance of what we're talking about because we're so used to in v4 the the tension between the two is is playing with the sizing right of how many hosts you need in a given in a given network that you just don't have to think about that anymore which is a really weird feeling for anyone who's an ipv4 network engineer like i just don't worry about that anymore so stop worrying about it it's a it's a constant tension or anxiety that exists for for all uh, I think uh, network operators uh, today that are so used to V4 and you, you just don't have those concerns anymore. So I think it's hard to jettison that from your head. 
Yeah, absolutely. That, that, I mean, the, the slash and that, of course, that extends beyond the slash 64 into the prefix space proper, um, you right. know, because the slash 64 is what we put on interfaces in general. Uh, but then as we move up to higher levels of summarization in the overall address space that we're numbering into, you know, we've got these, um, you know, the, the basic currency of, uh, of the site you know, the prefix of a slash 48 in size, the smallest routable prefix in the, on the IPv6 internet. Uh, and, and just the, the consumption, you know, like if you just even sort of dragging your IPv4 thinking along with you, the, the, the idea that, you know, it's one thing to say to finally get around over the mental stumbling block of I've got, you know, 1.8 times 10 to the 19th addresses. I just don't have to worry about host addresses anymore. It's another thing to apply that same mode of thinking to the prefix space. Because again, you know, where you're trying to, you might be trying to summarize in order to, you know, organize the network around what your particular topology is. And so, you know, it's not the same scenario, obviously, as having 1.8 times 10 to the 19th host addresses, but the same paranoia about, you know, over consuming prefixes, or I, I think more specifically, basically having prefixes that are held in reserve that, you know, you, you probably will never number into. Um, and then, you know, just that's a sort of a function that's forced by trying to keep things aligned along, along nibble boundaries, uh, you know, which is something that we've recommended for a long time. Uh, but that just the, the, the idea that you're going to overconsume prefix space and, and then, you know, the reality of you look at the amount of IPv6 that's already been deployed, you know, the internet at large is hovering somewhere a little around 50% IPv6. And, you know, we're like halfway there and we've used what 0.07% of the overall prefix space in, in the global unicast allocation of 2000 double colon slash three. I mean, so not even one tenth of 1% of the prefix space of 48 that's available. So the, the V4 thinking that, you know, it, 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 it's more than just host addresses, right? It's also prefix space and it's really, a, it's a mental hurdle that's hard to get over. Yeah, yeah I, vulnerability I, scanning is also V4 thinking. <laughs> you know, you think I'm going to scan all my subnets and all my addresses and all my subnets to find vulnerabilities. You can't, you know, or... Well, with modern vulnerability scanning products, they don't do the types of reconnaissance, you know, that you can do otherwise. But, you know, you want, you get this tendency of thinking, ah, I'm going to scan all my networks, you know, or something like that, you know. Yeah, and I, I think in a carefully planned network um, could be, you know, depending on on, on what you have, you know, sort of, sort of set up, it, it could be incredibly difficult for someone to understand that concept because if they're used to working on a relatively you know smaller enterprise network it's like yeah it's not a problem to scan my network i can throw my address space in there mm -hmm. and and sort of figure it out but i mean just and to, to tom's earlier point you may not be using mass swaths of your address mm -hmm. space in in v6 and so trying to guess what's happening next in terms of reachability for a particular prefix could be very very difficult um and even limiting that just to a 48 could be a challenge. Um, so I think it's uh, thinking that you're gonna somehow scan and identify all the hosts in a given network uh, with that design architecture could be, could be. <laughs> you're gonna need some, some other tools to help you out uh, to figure out what's going on, some other insight or, or, or drop piece of information that, that helps you determine where hosts actually are, I think um, is, is the way you might address that. But that's definitely a V4 thinking problem. I don't know what, what's the other v4 thinking problem that that's probably gonna that I think is gonna bite people is the whole NAT concept right mm -hmm. um and, and we haven't really talked too much about it but it's 
it, it, it maybe it leads into our our next sort of conversation point of, of another pitfall. But I think NAT is such a common, you commonly used, you know, tool in the IPv4 mm-hmm. tool belt because we don't have enough v4 addresses, so you can't you can't provide public v4 addresses for for hosts even with a stateful packet inspection firewall. You wouldn't do that on any given network because you don't have the address space resources to mm-hmm. to do that unless you're incredibly lucky or very early on in getting address assignments. Um, and they're probably worth way too much money now to be <laughs> splatting them around inside your network internally. So I think. So I think it, that's that's another one that is is something that people are not comfortable with. I guess I guess they literally are not comfortable designing networks that don't have NAT running around inside of it. Is that do you think that's a fair statement? Yeah, so, they they conflate the translation with the stateful filtering. Right. They think they're the same and they can't be separated. Yeah, that's, I, that's really the mental block that I think people have because it's so used to be done, being done on the same device, the firewall. Right. And, and we're talking all the way from the smallest devices, CPUs, all the way up to the biggest mm-hmm. enterprises, huge firewalls. It's the same mm-hmm. process. And so I think it's been very ingrained as a V4 thinking of this is the way you deploy networks, right? Yeah. And addressing is is all of V4 addressing in an enterprise is done based on that concept. We have private addresses and we net it to a few or one public IPv4 address. <laughs> Completely overload that one public mm-hmm. address. Yeah. Okay. Everything's hidden behind it. And mm-hmm. there there shall be no other way <laughs> um to uh to 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 build build your network. And and you know, this and I'll, I'll be honest, that's a completely reasonable answer for the IPv4 realm, um, because of the constraints that we're dealing with there. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just um, freeing yourself of those constraints is incredibly hard. Like uh, watching the conversations that we go through, uh, you know, from in design exercises and, well, how do we do routing? Well, we do routing the way we do routing on the public internet. <laughs> like there's, there's all those conversations of like, you know, I, I don't understand, like, you know, what's the delineation between what my enterprise is and what, you know, the public internet is. And it's like, well, this is your prefix space. You can do whatever you you care to do, and you can secure it in any, any way that you care to. You put this pre, these prefix ranges behind your firewall. You put these prefix ranges in front of your firewall, right? Um, and and that, I think that's a very hard thing for people to get over. They feel like, well, because it's a globally unique address, it has to be globally accessible, and there's no correlation between the two of those. And I think that's very much a, a carryover from a V4 thinking of like. RFC 1918 isn't accessible to my outside world unless I build a mapping for something, right? You don't necessarily have to do that in a specific way uh, for V6, right? But you would still have a stateful firewall in front of it. So you're still building a mapping rule, basically, Mm -hmm. or a policy rule that says whether you can access something or not. It's just not written in a way that's maybe clearly delineated in the same sort of way that V4 uh, does it. Which is which is fine. It might, you know, I I understand the the pitfalls or, or the the stumbling blocks that people have with that, but just don't let it ruin your design, right? In terms of in terms of you know what you what you want to do from a design element of getting V six deployed. Don't think that your your NAT is necessarily a a, a, key, a key critical element of of your design uh, itself. So and we spent yeah, a lot. And, of, and go ahead. You'll still do security functions like an outbound web content filter, which mm-hmm. will be running as an outbound forward proxy 
terminating the internal connection, creating a new external, you know, TCP session and stitching them together in a stateful way. Proxying is still valid in V4 and V6. Yeah. It has that byproduct of the 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 net new external connection has a different source address than the internal connection from the client to the you know proxy. Um, so it has that feeling that it's doing a NAT. Right. Um, but it's really a termination of a session and a start of a new session. Right? Yeah. And you'll still use that security function in your V6 network, same as you do today with your V4 network. Just want to make sure your vendor <laughs> supports IPv6 right. thoroughly. Yeah. Well, I think I think we covered the V4 thinking side, but the NAT carries over to maybe our mm -hmm. next pitfall, which is... And, and I think this is, we consider this a today pitfall. This may not be a pitfall in the future if, if certain things get fixed. <laughs> mm -hmm. But the pitfall to pay, uh, today, uh, we think uh, deploying ULA is a, is, is a pitfall for organizations. And there's a whole variety of reasons why. And we've covered these in some of the, some past shows. Um, but but I, I really feel like that's a pitfall that people should be avoiding at least today is deploying ULA, especially if you're planning on deploying it in a dual stack network that you should avoid ULA. And I think just as a general rule, we should be avoiding ULA, especially especially if you've got plenty of prefix space um, that you you know you went out and acquired or or were given. Um, I don't see a lot of compelling reasons to use ULA, but maybe we talk about one or two, or and, and maybe we we talk about the specific pitfall around ULA. Um, yeah, we've yeah, we've covered it, you know, in other episodes uh, fairly extensively. But I mean, I guess just it boils down to the the basic brokenness of ULA and in dual stack environments. I mean, I think mm -hmm. you know the great the great major swath of our listeners are not at a, not in a position with their own networks where they can really think about doing IPv6 only yet. Um, right. And and for the folks that are you know that are going through the cycle of having you know deploying IPv6 using dual stack. Uh, you know, it is a big, it's, it's a potential big gotcha that's sitting there in, in plain sight that, you know, you go through the trouble of configuring your, your network with both IPv4 and IPv6 and you use ULA addresses and then the ULA addresses don't get used because of the prefix policy table and, and the way that you, that, uh, that's deployed in, in host OSs and server OSs. So that, you know, that's, that could potentially be a big rude awakening to go through all the trouble to do that. And then it's like, you know, you look at your, uh, your traffic graphing and it's like there's no traffic over ipv6 at all what's going on here yeah it's kind of an extension of the v4 thinking you know when you're new to v6 you're like okay i'm going to design a network well i see my global addresses well where's my v6 equivalent of rfc 1918 oh they tell you know vendor told me it's this ula address space oh okay that makes sense i'll approach v6 the same way i do ipv4 I'm going to do this ULA addressing. I'm going to NAT it at the firewall. It's the same thing I've done for IPv4. Feels natural based on, you know, 20, you know, 20, 30 years of V4 experience. Oh, okay. This makes sense. And then and they realize, the yeah, despair. It's, yeah <laughs> it's not working out. They're like, oh, the first thing they'll run into is, oh, with ULA, I only get a 48. That's like not enough <laughs> or <laughs> that's a site's worth of addressing. Um, yeah. yeah and, 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 and what I find very amusing is 
Well, people want to use the ULA side. They they pick and choose what they want to use out of ULA from the RFC. So they yeah. don't want to conform to the randomness that is yeah. required in, in the RFC. Yeah, they don't create the 40-bit okay. random number. Yeah. Right, which is okay. I, I, I get it. I, I'm just as bad. Like when I'm doing examples, I just grab the first one. <laughs> so I don't go through and build the random. Um, but that's for example purposes in a lab. If you're really going to deploy ULA, um, and you're serious about it, you should be following the RFC to avoid collision, potential collision domains. If you ever have to merge a network with someone else, if you have to exchange information with someone else, then in theory, that that's one of the advantages you get out of the randomness that was, that was placed in the ULA um, RFC. And then I think the, uh, <laughs> if that's an advantage, I don't know. Um, and, and then the other thing that you need to realize is that uh, the whole issue, the crux of the issue is, is actually, as Tom mentioned, RFC 6724 is is really the source destination address selection problem and ULA is is less preferred than IPv4. So if you're running a ULA and IPv4 network, your traffic will happen over IPv4, even though you may be publishing DNS records and providing all sorts of resources for doing ULA. And even if you had a NAT translation for working for, for IPv6 to translate your ULA out to a global unicast that you have on the front side, the mass majority of your traffic will still occur over v4 just because of that preference that exists in 6724 and there are there are pushes right now in the in the ITF to fix this particular issue um and it's going through all the <laughs> review and everything else that needs to happen for the for the ITF to actually you know make a change happen and there's lots of complex conversations that are happening in there if you want to follow it on the on the mailing list go enjoy <laughs> Uh, but uh, yeah, that's that. That is definitely a big pitfall, and it it, it definitely correlates to the IPv4 thinking, as, as Scott mentioned, because it's it really is just a carryover. You want to deploy ULA because you're carrying over your V4 thinking, uh, as opposed to deploying global unicast addresses, which is what pretty much everyone in the industry on the V6 side recommends that you do. Yep. All right. So I guess one of the things that you know, that isn't necessarily a technical issue, I guess. And Scott, you brought this one up, and maybe maybe you want to maybe you want to cover this for the audience. But I think it's 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 not really a technical issue, right? It's more of a a different type of pitfall that you might you might see organizationally as you try to adopt IPv6. Yeah, what we've seen at a lot of extremely large enterprises is that IPv6 an IPv6 project may start within the networking team. And they may charge ahead and deploy IPv6, maybe in pockets, maybe on, you know, uh, internally, maybe in isolated little environments. They may be rolling out IPv6 unbeknownst to the security teams or other teams. So I guess the the broader concept here is that maybe one team would be more further ahead in their IPv6 understanding and implementation experience than other teams. Maybe the cloud teams further ahead with deploying dual stack infrastructure and the internal teams, you know, the internal networking team hasn't quite caught up and now that cloud team wants to do something hybrid or the networking team is further ahead and the security team is behind. And then now that networking team wants to connect IPv6 through the internet perimeter out to the internet and there's a firewall in the way. And then the security team is like, well, what's IPv6? Like, 
I'm uncomfortable now that, <laughs> you know, the networking team is further ahead. And so if there's situations in an enterprise where one team is further ahead than another, it causes problems. Teams need to be moving at the same pace. Often, you know, it's recommended that you build an integrated project team, an interdisciplinary team of folks from these different, you know, uh, roles and responsibilities or or yeah. silo, technology silos, get them to work together more effectively. Um, but that's one thing we've seen as a pitfall for many organizations that causes the project to halt at some point yes. while other yeah, teams it, get caught up. And it really comes down to an organizational socialization mm -hmm. um, thing of saying like, we need participation from all the different aspects of the organization. Because I've, I've seen this on the roof on the other, the other side of that too, which is sort of the client and server side of being like, wait, you're turning on what? And we don't really understand or know much about this. We're, we're writing, you know, we're, we're building and deploying services all the time, but we don't really understand how V6 fits into the, what we're doing versus V4. And like, does every service have to be V6? And like, how does this impact how my client behaves? And I don't really understand what V6 is doing, which is very analogous, I think, you know, to what you're pointing out, Scott, which is a lack of participation early on makes people automatically want to say no as a response, right? Mm -hmm. We need you to participate and do this. We've already thought through all these design elements. And I'm not saying it's bad for a network team to go through and do some critical thinking around the design and what they want to do. And from a big picture perspective around maybe the size and scope of what they need to support. So an address plan <laughs> to, you know, to Tom's, you know, <clears throat> sort of, you know, wheelhouse there, right? You have to have an overall view of that. You've much, you much, as a network team, you probably have a much better understanding of what's required there. But if you don't talk to your security team, they may want to, you know, take the opportunity with what you can do with V6 and suddenly deploy, you know, overlay services, right? Overlay capabilities across the network. And they may want a whole swath of address space uh, to be able to support maybe some new features or functions that they have in mind that they want to deploy uh, over the long run. If you never have that conversation, you're not going to know about that need, right? Yeah, you're leaving one of the, Yeah, one of the public uh, examples of this was the U.S. Government Accounting Office did a review of the Depart U.S. Department of Defense's IPv6 mandates and their progress or lack thereof, and they created a report in 2020 citing that one of the key issues uh, that limited DOD's IPv6 deployment success was getting security teams, security personnel trained, engaged, you know, working on security as part of the network deployment of IPv6. And so, you know, making sure that understanding the threats, properly protecting against those threats, you know, was a key element that was, that was missing in deployment strategies that prevented them from, you know, making more progress. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. And, we, and, you know, in our day jobs, we, I think we see this on a recurring basis, both for federal organizations and large scale enterprises and, and, you know, all the way down to the smallest shop. Um, it's, it's a recurring problem uh, that we try to address up front, right. Of, of trying to really build something that's collaborative as a, as a project that, that covers the entire company. Cause networking doesn't, you know, the networking protocol doesn't sit in isolation with just the network team running that, right? It's not useful that way. So services have to be plugged in, they have to be secured, right? And and 
that's the key element that seems to be forgotten uh, as many people try and tackle this problem. And I think all the decisions can be made by the network team in, in isolation to, to sort of adopt V6. And I think this is a great mistake. You can deploy V6 across your your backbone and your and and in, in a whole slew of your network and never actually turn a client device on. Right? Yeah, I have seen several. <laughs> One very large government organization has the most beautiful OSPF E3 network. <laughs> Unconnected <laughs> to the internet. That's right. Untouched Not, by user traffic. <laughs> no router advertisement. No. Yeah, the only IPv6 packets on that network are hellos. <laughs> um, the routing exchanges. I, yeah, and I've seen that in, a, in two very large, and, you know, Fortune 100 enterprises. And it, it may have been what's been running since like 2012 or something. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Well, you know, that he, he got his CCI, that was his CCI practice. <laughs> <laughs> he, he got it all figured out and it's working great. <laughs> yeah. We checkbox, we have a hundred percent IPv6 deployed. That's <laughs> on right. every, it's on every router. It's on every router. <laughs> Well, to Ed's yeah, point, you know, you couldn't looking at the other through the other end of the telescope, you 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 couldn't have invented a protocol more, uh, you know, that would be more conducive to forcing a, a cross-functional uh, initiative within an, an enterprise or you know a large organization that's trying to deploy IPv6. You know, just the division of of uh, the network with the the server host side and having to bring those two together. You know, and then when you add security to the mix, it it, it really does just force the issue of, of if mm -hmm. you don't have a good cross-functional initiative chops built into the organization, you're, you're going to run into those headaches because of that, you know, lack of, uh, of all seeing from the same hymnal on, on IPv6 and, and, the, and to be fair to the security teams, you know, the, the, the types of initiatives that they're dealing with related to, you know, trends and like trying to figure out what zero trust is and get to that, mm -hmm. get move in that direction, you know, and, and what, how much that, uh, you know, sort of suggests or implies micro segmentation and, and actual, you know, real world policy that boils down into actual configurations and, and where V6 fits into that picture. It's not, you know, there's a lot of moving parts and, and yeah. you, you could be forgiven for like throwing up your hands and saying, well, I'm not going to show up to those V6 meetings because I've got so much <laughs> on my plate already that, you know, I, I really, you know, I, one more variable is, is just, that's going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back. Having said that, you know, don't be surprised when you find yourself in the hot seat of being the the one individual or the one team that's that's holding up the entire IPv6 initiative and uh, you know and being called onto the carpet to figure out how to fix that and move forward. Yeah, I think you know network access control NAC, you know, was plagued uh, by you know with failures of enterprises who failed to deploy a NAC solution, probably couldn't get it off the ground because it involved cooperation between desktop network systems and security you know and the same thing is true of zero trust to get that type of initiative designed and deployed it requires cross-functional team well and v6 fits in the same category and mm -hmm. i think it, it also exposes every single bit of political faction that you have within your organization mm -hmm. which is why it's it's it could be a huge pitfall <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. of, of not getting people involved because what you're doing is you're exposing the raw nerve of everyone saying you refuse to work with me or you're holding back information or you're doing you know these horrible things or you're not a team player like all those things manifest themselves <laughs> uh, the longer you wait to get involvement and 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 uh, as part of that initiative um 
you know, all those things are going to happen and being really clear and concise and, you know, managing upstream to your, your project, you know, to your, to your superiors about what's going on with the project and then managing downstream for your technical teams to, to understand the things that they need to accomplish and how they need to work with their vendors and to vet things and everything else. And so that's a challenge, <laughs> like that's a skill in and within itself. And that's, uh, so the, don't have any misconceptions, but just like any complex, um, um, multifunction, um, you know, set of services that you need to deploy in your, in, in your organization, you'll run into this problem. And V6 is just yet another example of exactly that. So yeah, just another pitfall. <laughs> I think we outlined uh, quite a few of them, you guys. I, um, I'm super curious to hear what the audience has as additional pitfalls around, around this. And uh, we would love feedback around that. Um, so if, if you've got some, we would love to hear it, especially if you have, you know, practical, you know, real world experience of running into pitfalls around V6 deployment and adoption, whether that's dual stack or whether that's single stack, either one. Um, we'd love, we'd love to hear it. Well, you can reach the IPv6 Buzz podcast on Twitter at IPv6 Buzz. And you can also hit up each one of us on Twitter uh, at uh, IPv6 Tom, at Scott Hogan, at E. Horley. But, you know, to be honest, Twitter or X or whatever the heck they're calling it these days seems to be having challenges. So we really appreciate it if you head over to packetpushers.net slash FU, which stands for follow up, uh, just to go ahead and drop us any questions, comments about the shows, uh, pros, cons, things you're liking, things you don't. Um, I can't change the quality of my voice, so just you're stuck with that. But <laughs> And a quick note, we've got a new logo for the Packet Pushers, and, and you should start seeing that rolling out uh, in the next few weeks, and specifically for our show too. So we want to mention, so you're not surprised if you're in your podcast you know, favorite player and you're like, I don't understand, why is that yellow thing showing up? Well, that's our new logo. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the IPv6 Buzz. You can find us on the Packet Pushers or any of your favorite podcast apps. Just search for IPv6 Buzz. And if you like the show, please give us a rating on your favorite podcast app and please recommend the show to friends and colleagues. We would appreciate that. Uh, and if you like this podcast, we recommend you check out Heavy Networking, Day 2 Cloud, Network Break, and, you know, and all the other great technical content over at PacketPusher.net. So long and until next time, we'll see you on the internet. The IPv6 internet, that is. Thanks for listening to IPv6 Buzz, a podcast devoted to truth, justice, and 128 bits of address space. IPv6.